how can we move forward? Moving forward is about putting people in place that will help to change some of these things that are going on. So we have to put leadership in place, not those who throw gasoline on the fire, you know, but those people that are looking and looking at our democracy and helping and look at everyone as equal. You know, we're so far away from that, looking at black people as counting them as equal versus white people. We have to all at some point figure out how we come together and peace, but also make sure that we cannot be continued to be martyrs. You know, we cannot be continued to be stepped on. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. I'm Dr. Max Clow, Senior Director of Leadership Development at New Politics, a bipartisan organization dedicated to revitalizing American democracy by recruiting, supporting, and electing servant leaders who put community and country over self. On every episode of this podcast, I'm joined by a servant leader, a military veteran, or an alum of a civilian service program like AmeriCorps or Peace Corps, who has chosen to serve again through politics at this critical moment for our country. And together, we explore the challenges of leading with courage, integrity, and empathy in the toxic space of American politics today. On this episode, I have the honor of sitting down with Claudette Williams, a U.S. Army veteran who retired as a sergeant major after 30 years of service. A single mother of three, Claudette was called to active duty after 9-11 and spent more than a year in Iraq. With the help of family, friends, and community, she was able to find the necessary care for her kids, but she sacrificed some of the most formative years of their childhood in order to serve as a soldier. When she retired from the military in 2014, Claudette felt called to continue serving her community of Mount Pocono in Northeast Pennsylvania. She soon won a seat on the borough council, and soon after that became the first woman of color to be elected president of the council, a position she currently still holds. In the 2020 cycle, she stepped up to run to represent District 176 in the Pennsylvania State Legislature, where she ultimately lost to Republican Jack Rader. For our podcast episodes between Martin Luther King Day through Black History Month this February, we'll be connecting with Black servant leaders like Claudette to hear about their path from service to politics and to hear more about what it's been like to be a candidate or elected official of color in America through the tumultuous year of 2020. In our time together, Claudette talks about what she learned about leadership from her time in the military, what it was like campaigning as a black woman in suburban and rural Pennsylvania this past cycle, and what we need to do as a nation to move forward after the challenges of the past few years. Claudette is a remarkable servant leader, and I'm honored to welcome her to our show. Claudette Williams, thank you so much for being with us here on our show. And uh, here's where I always like to start. What is your earliest memory of service, your earliest memory of seeing the value of service? Well, my earliest memory of service, I would say maybe I was maybe the age of nine. Um, Back in the West Indies, Jamaica West Indies, my family had a business and um, a and I remember when we uh, service in the community and I remember that's when I first learned about someone getting goods on credit. Um, my, they, if someone would come in and need food or, or st- uh, something and didn't have the money and they would, you know, ask my, my family to my mom to put it on credit, you know, until they receive their paycheck, they could 
pay for it. And I remember sometimes even having neighbors who can't afford anything, but, you know, you know, packing a little bag or something that my mom would say, and then we go in and drop it off to our neighbors. So, I mean, our first memory of service was to our neighbors and our community, helping each other out. Great. And so tell us how you got from being a child in the West Indies into the U.S. military. Uh, give us that story. <laughs> my mom migrated to the United States back in the early 1970s. Um, and then when she came to the United States, she left us behind with our um, with our sister. Um, we stayed with her for so we were separated for just about three years. And then um, after she came here in and gained um, permanent status, then she came back to Jamaica and asked the, the Jamaican government um, to for um, a visa for her children. And so my, my sibling and I, my brother and my sister, we came to the United States. We had a permanent um, um, visa to the United States. And then um, later on, um, I remember back in 1990, I think it was 1990, I became actually uh, became a, a U.S. citizen. Um, and one of the reasons for becoming a U.S. citizen, then I joined the military um, back in 1985. And you were giving, I had a dual citizenship, but you were giving, the after five years in the military, you must become a U.S. citizen um, because of security clearance and, and all of that. So I had to give up my citizenship um, to the West Indies and became a U.S. citizen. And that allows me to um, stay in the military and join. But I, I, when I joined the military, at that time they had that commercial, you know, join the military, see the world. Um, you know, so you can travel. So the, the enticing part for me was the traveling piece of it. But, you know, as you, you know, learn, as you join that military, you and, and you get involved and you realize the reason and the purpose of, you know, being a part of, of that organization, and I call it an organization, it takes a hold of you, you know, and there's those things that they do where they give you a promotion, you get promoted and promotion means responsibilities. Responsibility means you're now, you know, taking care of yourself, but also taking care of someone else. And as that that grows, it become a part of you. And before you know it, it'll be 20 years later, and you're saying, "Wow, you know, time flies." So that's how you know it all started. And tell me a little bit. I know it's kind of a big question, but what did you learn about leadership from your time in the military? Ah. <sighs> So I learned, one of the things I've learned, sometimes you'll find yourself that you have to walk alone. And sometimes you're forced to make tough decisions. And even with people that you're considered your friends, you will you find yourself in a position where you have to make a decision that will affect them. But you have to look at the big picture and the reason why you're, you're, you're doing what you're doing and, and why you're in that position. And so, you know, it's, it's learning. You also learned about yourself, like who you are and the, the kind of person that you are, the style, the things that work for you. Because not every leader lead the same way. We have our own leadership style. And so you have to actually get to know yourself you know, and then when you learn to know yourself and how you can deal with people, then, you know, you'll come into your own as to the kind of leader that you are and the kind of leader you set the standard of the kind of leadership, the kind of leader that you want to be. And when people remember you, they're remembering you because of the way that you have led. Mm -hmm. So that was very important to me. 
Great. And I know you served for years before 9-11. Yes. And then 9-11 happens. Tell us a little bit about your military service at that point. So 9-11 happened and I, you, you know, serving prior to 9-11, you, I was a reservist at one point. So, I mean, you're doing everything that you needed to do and you're, you're just going through your time. You're doing things that are all stateside. So you learn how to function on, on, um, in, in, in the United States safe zone, I should call it, you know, and then 9-11 happened and every unit started getting activated and people are being mobilized. And my unit at that time was not mobilized, but I felt all my years in, in the military, now you're talking about, um, you know, six, seven years, that now is the time that we're called to duty. Now is the, the time that you said you're a soldier, you're, you, you raise your right hand to defend the United States. Now is the time. So when, and this might sound real crazy, but when the first group was, I was at, I was at Fort Eustis, Virginia, and the seven trans left out, and I was there, I felt left out. I felt left out. I felt like this is a time that our country needed us, and we were not going. And I wanted to serve. I, yes, I'm serving, but now I feel like there was a call to duty and my unit was not on board at that time. Well, needless to say, I mean, every one of us were gonna go, but at that time I didn't, you know, was just thinking about what I see, you know, what was happening at that moment. And so when we were called to active duty um, to go overseas, the reality then hit that you're actually leaving, you know, peacetime. Um, it's no longer serving in peacetime, you're now serving in wartime. Then you started thinking about your family. You what, had kids at that point, right? You I were had a mom kids at that, at that time. Yeah. I had kids at that time. And um, yes, I had kids at that time. I was a- How many uh, kids and what ages? I had, so the time I went over in 2003, I got, um, I went over in 2003. At that time I had three kids and I was raising my cousin. My twins were seven. Twins. Um, yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and my, my, my other daughter, uh, she was, what is it? I went by 15, mm -hmm. just about. And I had my cousin that I was raising. She was 18. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a single parent and I have four children. And so what do I do yeah. now? How, how long did you deploy for? Uh, 485 days. But you know, I counted it as 485 and I just looked at my orders. Now I'm cleaning up my office and it was 507 days. You know, um, so I think somewhere between there is where we had that. Yeah, that a long time, there. a long it's time. It's a long time. Yeah. Because when I left, my twins were seven. And when I came back, they were nine. So, um, it was a very, very tough time trying to figure out how to be a parent yeah. um, from a distance, but also trying to be a full-time soldier that is needed on the battlefield where your mission um, is. And so it was a constant struggle. So at some point, the person, to me, the person that suffered the most was me. I was making sure that the, the mission, I gave 100% to the mission mm -hmm. and I was trying to give 100% to my children which means I have to deprive myself of certain things such as sleep right? to be right. able to interact with the time zone to be there for my children as a parent. Were you able to 
call? I mean, this was before Zoom and stuff. Were you? Yes. How were you able to stay connected? Um, so we had so in um, I know when we were in Kuwait, they had set up where you you had a phone, like a pay phone, mm. and you could call. And each of you, you'll get like maybe ten minutes on the phone or fifteen minutes on the phone. And then I um, and and so you stand in line or you put your name on a list, and they were able to call and connect to a base in the United States that would in, in turn connect to your family, your home phone. And after a while, we got to the point where we were able to get some cell phones, um, mm-hmm. those little flip phones, but then you still call to a base and that base would connect you to your, your, your family. So if you call and they miss you, then you have to wait again until you get another chance. Wow. And, and at some point, some um, organization were starting to give um, calling cards so they would send calling cards out to the, the soldiers and that allow us to be able to use those calling cards to be able to call home. So, you know, there was, but it was not like readily as you can pick up your phone right now and sure. say, I'm going right. to be calling. And FaceTime you know, it, from around the world, right? Oh yeah. It was like yeah. standing in line. The mail was very helpful. You know, whatever message we could get through the mail, you know, those were the times. Well, it's a, uh... Inconceivable sacrifice too. Yeah. It's uh, amazing um, to serve for that long. Um, tell us, I mean, that incredible commitment to to serving the country through the military. How'd you get into politics? What was that path? So, um, so I got involved in in politics. Like whenever I was home, um, um, I would, you know, at one point I was stationed at Scott Air Force Base. So whenever I'm home. I would um, always try to make sure that I keep, I vote. I remember in 2004, I was calling for my absentee ballot while I was overseas and didn't get my va- my ballot. And I was very, very angry because to me it was so important that I vote, that um, you know, um, I have a commander in chief in place. And so I wanted my voice to be heard regardless of whatever it is. And so I make sure that every time that I get an opportunity that I could vote, that I would vote. And whenever I'm home, um, an R&R or in a break and it's an election time frame, I would volunteer to a phone bank. So I volunteer to phone bank and you have to put your name on a list and I'll go back um, to my base and I come back, I volunteer for something in, our, in my community. So when I um, came home right before I retired, um, the local races were going on and the leader of the Democratic Party for Monroe County and, and Tarakia at the time um, reached out to me and she said, better yet, the, the local newspaper had wrote uh, several articles about me when I came home an R&R, about a single mom came home an R&R. I was featuring the newspaper and then they'd put me like in the middle or close to the back. Someone made a complaint saying when we have soldiers who have sacrificed in a home, we should make them front page feature versus back page or in the middle. So they moved it up to the front. So that changes that piece of it moving forward. And so Anne had reached out to me and asked me if I ever thought about um, getting involved in politics. And I was like, oh, okay. She said, well, we noticed that you have always phone bank and you're all, you have already always been involved. You know, have you ever thought about running for anything? And I was like, no. And she said, well, do you think about running for council in your borough? And I said, council? I said, what do they do? And she says, um, you know, she didn't give me a really good answer, but I had like one day in which to submit my paperwork to be able to be placed on the ballot. And so I said, 
okay, all righty, what do I need? I'll serve. I'm being asked to serve. I'll serve. (laughs) That was it. That is it. I'll serve. And that was how I got involved. And at that time, I wasn't completely retired from the military. So I had to go through JAG. I had to ask for permission since I was in the process of retiring, ask for permission to go ahead and run um, and to be have my name on the ballot. And so I it just continued service. There was not a break in servicing. You know, it's just transition from one to the other. And tell us your pathway. I know you recently ran for the state legislature. Tell us how long did you serve on the council and how long before you decided to kind of throw your hat in the ring for a higher office? Well, I am currently still serving on the council. Mm-hmm. I am actually okay. president of a council. Um, but what one of the things that trigger running for the state house is um, people, when you're a good leader, it speaks for itself. When you're someone that that is about service, it speaks for itself. People will sort you out because they know if they have an issue or a problem, this is an individual that will help you or find a way to help you. And so I get a lot of that as a, as a part of the council. People were coming for advice or how could I do this or complain or issues. And some of it was not something that I could do at a, a council level. It's more of a state legislative um, position or that those changes can be made. So having a seat at that table to be able to make some of those changes that I was faced with from the residents in, in the county and in my borough was one of my drive for um, running for that state house seat. And also um, when I looked at some of the things that that was happening once I retired, you know, such as, you know, we, I hear the cry about um, the minimum wages and health care. To me, that is a part of freedom also. And I, I put that in place of, wait a minute, my, I mean, I did all these time overseas and I, left my family behind and I left my son at the airport crying and I wanted his mommy and all because of this freedom, all of these things to be having, you know, things in our community. And then it was not there, you know, it was missing. And so therefore it was the freedom that I fought for. I needed to go ahead and collect it for those people or maybe have that voice and continue to fight for those things. Powerful, powerful. So this is for our episode for Black History Month. We're talking to several of our you know, Black candidates to get a little sense of what is it like to be Black and trying to get into politics and on the campaign trail. So, you know, what, how do you feel like your race influenced your experience on the, as a politician and on the campaign trail? Where to it, start? It, is, it is one of those things that you are who you are that will never change. And um, we, or myself as a Black woman, understand that coming out the door, that I'm going to be faced with a lot of challenge. I'm going to be, um, I'm going to get the doors that are going to be shutting my face. Not because I'm this great individual who has served my country and have received these accolades and not because, um, you know, I am on the Bar Council, but simply because I am a Black woman. Simply, that is. I mean, in my race, I, I see when I first uh, campaigned and I started knocking on doors. And I remember one incident when I knocked on a door and um, I had a, a lady that was knocking, that was traveling with me, a white woman. And we were 
somewhat energized, you know, and I, I know in the back of my head, I never forget that I'm a black person, never forget who I am. But at least I say there will be some doors. I've done some things and I've, you know, left my mark. People knew my name. And I remember knocking, um, going up to a door. And I remember a gentleman came out and he looked at me. And now the, the other lady I was with, the white lady, she was in a car. She was in the car. She was getting ready to get out. But I got out first because I'm the candidate. So I'm the one that's going to be speaking and approaching. Sure. And I remember he he screamed at me and he said, get out, like as if you're chasing an animal out of your, you know, get out, get out of here. Um, you're not welcome. And just the tone of voice and everything. And I felt like someone kicked me in my gut. And then I remember um, she got out of the car and he stated that it was okay for her to come forward, but I had to go back. And I remember I, um, it took all my wind out of my sail. And I was done for the day. I wanted to be done. I wanted to go home. I called my mom. I share with my mom my experience. I was mm -hmm. emotional, not tearing up, but I was emotional inside. And I went home that day and I um, that night I was done. Wasn't campaigning anymore. Um, not for that day. And I went home, but I, I sit down and I thought about it. And I thought about who I am, you know, what, where I came from, my upbringing, you know, and I would not let someone else dictate who I am or make me less than who I am, who I am. And so therefore I pray about it, call some friends and talk about it. And then I had um, one girlfriend of mine, she turned it into a joke. She started reenacting exactly what I told her. And she was like, go, go, get away from here. And she made it a joke. And by the end of the night, we were laughing so hard. You know, amazing. it was like, and, yeah. and I said to her, I felt like an animal, like a dog. You know, I said, better yet, a dog gets treated better than I was treated. I said, you know, and that just broke the ice. And the next day I got up and I said, you know what happened? I'm not going to take it personal. It is not about me. Now who I am, um, that person that gentleman, I feel sorry for him because for the simple reason, when I looked around his house, he had toys, you know, which means he had young children. Kid. Yeah. And so I think about the next generation, what you just communicated, what you just did to me, you'll communicate that same thing to your child or your children. And so the cycle will still continue. It will never be broken, but it's not about me. It's about him. He has to deal with those issues. And you know, it's not about me. And that was what got me in more energized and more aggressive in going out there, knocking the door and to move forward. So you're saying the next day you were more energized. Oh, I was more energized. I was determined. Amazing. <laughs> I was determined. You're not going to define me and you're not going to use the color of my skin to make me feel as if I am less than you are. And, and therefore I went back out because I know what I, I know who I am. I know I'm the second um, generation immigrant, yes, and that it was sometimes a black mark as I've been told against me. But at the same time, I'm an individual who raised my right hand and saying, I will defend the United States. You know, I've paid my dues, you know, and I am entitled to go anywhere I want to go. And you're not going to put me off to the sideline the side because of the color of my skin. I refuse to allow you and I refuse to give you that privilege. 
So powerful. We have a lot of folks in our community, folks who have come through our programs, who have served in the past and they're people of color. What advice do you have um, for people of color who are who have served in the past and are looking at politics right now, having kind of walked the path that you have walked? What advice do you have for folks that are a few steps behind you? Have, have a faith and confidence in yourself. I mean, um, seek, um, seek your peers. Some of people that looks like you and I read about some of those people who have gone before us. And when a door is closed, this is one of the things that my soldiers usually say about me. When someone say no, don't just turn away and walk away. You figure out why they say no. You investigate why they say no. And then you figure out how can I change that no into a yes? You know, so be positive about everything that you're doing, but also knowing who you are and don't let someone else define you. You define yourself. Great. And how about a related question? What advice do you have for white people who aspire to be an ally to candidates of color uh, at this you know, moment of reckoning once again with our with our history? What what advice do you have for white allies? Get to know those individuals, get to know those people of color. Um, at the end of the day, if you say if you take the time and I remember having a conversation with a gentleman from the radio station and we spoke about his father who had served in the military, I shared within my experience. And one of the things he told me, he said his father never shared with him his experience in the military. And I told him, I said, I find myself doing that with my children, not sharing. And he said to me, share with your children. And I took his advice, but I also share with him my experience while I was on that campaign trail. And he, his question to me, how did you overcome that? I told him, I said, I figure a way how to get to the front door, you know, versus stepping back. So what I did when I knocked on the door and someone come out with their shotgun or they wanted to chase me off, what I would say, I look, first thing I would do is look for the American flag. I figured I serve under the under the flag. So at home, I am going to continue to serve under the flag. So I'd look if they have a flag in um, a flagpole with a flag flying, I would say, well, hey, well, thank you very much for flying the American flag. I served under the flag. And that usually will stop them and be like, what do you mean? And I said, well, I served in the, in the military. And they'll open that door to have a conversation with me. And once they open that door to have that conversation, they realize that we are the same. We are thinking the same. We're having the same we're just, we just look different. And I remember that happening, that happened to me with an 82 year old white woman. And just that conversation opened the door. And she told me, she said, you have my vote. So if we can meet and sit at the table and listen to each other and don't look at me and judge me because of the color of my skin or because of my accent or because of where I came from, but take the time to get to know each other and realize sometimes we're not going to agree with the same thing, but most of the time we're looking at things the same way and having that conversation. So let's be open to each other. Let's be welcoming to each other and try to listen and have a conversation. Actually connect, actually connect yeah. with each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have to ask how often while you were knocking on doors, would it happen that, that you were, you know, told to go away or somebody showed up with a shotgun. Is that a daily thing for a black candidate? Is it, how often? Well, when I first started out, it was really, really bad. Um, it was it was bad because 
I didn't understand it. And they, I'm the first of, of the, the kind, you know, I'm the first that they're seen knocking on the door, a black person, you want to run for, for, for state rep, you know, so it, it, it was quite frequent, you know, if it's, if it's something was happening, they should show that I, you're a black woman, go away. But then someone put it on Facebook. And because um, I think someone share who was with me share the experience that they experienced that day. And someone put it on Facebook. Um, a gentleman put it on Facebook. And we got a lot of response from a lot of people, white people that said, Claudette, when are you going? I will walk with you. I will not doors with you. And so we had people that came in that were white that would not door with me. And so it minimized. And after a while, if someone shut the door in our face or said anything, we didn't pay it any attention. I kind of got used to it. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, like the first two months of it, it was like constant. You know, every day at the end of knocking on a door, it felt as if I'm depleted. You know, and I come home to my safe haven, regenerate myself and go back out. And I'm, I'm, I would be lying if I said Every time that I step in the car and decide I'm going to door knock, if there wasn't that fear, um, it wasn't that feeling that comes in your stomach, that well, you know, that fearful of doing it, but it's something that I had to fight against and, you know, do it. I've gone to places where I'm stepping into the room and I may, or maybe there's one other person, the only black person in that room. Right. You know, but when I told when I walk in that door, I tell myself I belong here. They were waiting for me in my mind and fooling myself. <laughs> it might be, but I tell myself this. I talk to myself and said, I belong here. They're waiting for me. Now I am here and whatever. And then I don't pay attention to the fact that, you know, I'm the only yes, we do notice that I'm the only black person in this room. Yes, the first thing you'll do, you'll, you'll scout the room and see how many of you. But then at the end of the day, I tell myself I belong here. I have a reason to be here and I have a voice, you know, and then that overpowers the fact that you should be nervous of being here because I'm going to represent. I carry myself in, in, a, in a certain manner that demands its respect, just as, well, as much as I give that respect. Yeah. And then, so I won't settle for less than, 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 than that. I have to ask any advice. We have a lot of folks in our alumni community who have those voices in their head. Um, and it's not just candidates of color. Everybody has a little bit of imposter syndrome sometime of just mm -hmm. who am I to be stepping up in this way? Any advice on just how to overcome those voices and just, you know, clearly you're, you're, you're able to uh, hold it in yourself. I'm worthy. I belong here. And a lot of folks in our community struggle with that. So what would you tell them? If you're spiritual, I'll say you, you you draw from your spiritual base. So just like um, when I served overseas, I have like two songs that was constantly played in my head. And on the bottom of my email, most of my email, especially my email, Claudette for the people, I've always since, since I think 2003, on the bottom of my email, it has um, one of, a Bible verse that, that says, to whom much is given, much is required. And there's a song that says he raised me up so I can stand on mountain. So you keep those things. Those are the things that empower me. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. to whom much is given, much is required. I believe that I'm blessed. I was given a blessing. And so therefore it's required me to continue to give back to, to service. Mm 
to continue to pay it forward. For me, I believe that I was I was created. If if you now I'm the an author on a book of of an anthology, and I spoke a little about my my the way that I I came into this world. You know, I was supposed to be an aborted child, and the it didn't happen. And when I did ask my dad about it later on, he said, well, you were chosen by God. So I always kept that in the back of my head. So with everything else, I, I always said, he raised me up so I can stand on mountains. So until I'm on top of that mountain, there's a lot of work that I have to do. There's a lot of valleys and streams that I have to cross. So I am constantly climbing. And so when you start thinking that you are, what's your purpose? You know, identify what your purpose is. Then those little voices in your head, it's going to encourage you to go on because you have to fulfill that purpose and the reason that you think that you are, you know, created. And so, so I would say, pull on your spiritual base. If you're not spiritual, whatever it is that empowers you, that get you out of bed in the morning to face the crowd and to be able to digest whatever is going on in our country, then you pull from that, that, that source. And that's what's going to get you to the next level. And when you feel like you can't get to that next level, you have nothing less, left then you have to be able to have that connection, you know, that you can reach out. And I always said connections, sometimes having those outside connections is what's going to help you to be stable and to stand firm. And so that's how I go about my day and, and, and listen, my beautiful I, uh, children that yeah. keeps me going. I can feel the spiritual strength just from you telling the story. I can, I can sense the energy. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you. So, this episode is for Black History Month 2021. I'm very mindful of, it has been quite a year since the last uh, Black History Month. Um, since last February, we didn't know the pandemic was coming back then. We've had a pandemic. We've had the uprisings following the murders of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor. Um, so much has gone on, plus the recent storming of the Capitol by Trump supporters, many of whom carried Confederate flags. It has been a, a difficult year. And given all that has happened, what are you thinking about this February? What are you asking yourself kind of this Black History Month after the year we've had? Well, I have been asked to speak at um, the Chateau on Monday. I am a speaker at an event on Monday, an in-person event. Um, They're keeping it to a minimum. And I have been thinking about what would I say? What is it that I'm going to be talking about? And, you know, some of the things that I've asked myself the question, I've looked at, um, since it's uh, Martin Luther King's birthday we're celebrating, um, looking at what he has done, you know, the things that he has said, looking at how far we have come, or are we going forward? Are we going backward? You know, where are we? And and just thinking about what is going on in our country, um, I'm... It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a war. It's a racial war. I mean, people are looking, and everyone is coming. I listen to my girls, my two girls, and I, I can hear, I, I see them, and I can hear the anger. They are angry about what's going on. My oldest daughter won't even watch what happened to George Floyd. She has not seen it. Um, my youngest has her own ideas. And because of everything that's going, I see where it, it tarnishes their, their belief. It tarnishes the way they look at people. Um, and they're now trying to put themselves in a category or separating themselves. And I'm trying to 
force them to be open. Um, it it creates people who were never the individuals to be hateful to become hateful. It's black against white. It's them against us. Um, those are the things that some of the things that I'm seeing, and we have to figure it. I'm, I'm I cannot sit here and honestly say that I haven't been angry. You know, been angry of the inequality that I see that's going on around our country. What happened in, in, in Washington on the 6th, where first thing, I was angry that night, saying that if it was people of color, we would be counting how many bodies were laying on the staircase and in the hallway. Instead, people get pat on the shoulders and they get, come on, let's go out. So those things, anger, you know, generate this anger in you and you can't help it. But as a leader and as someone who is trying to make sure that we keep the peace, we have to find that common ground and we have to say, okay, fine. Legislators, we have to put laws, we have to put things in place and we have to hold people accountable for, for, for their action. And so what I figure that I'll talk about is, is paint the picture. But how can we move forward? You know, how can we move forward? Moving forward is about putting people in place that will help to change some of these things that are going on. I mean, no matter how we want to say we're not involved in politics, there's laws and there's things that are in place to help with. So we have to put leadership in place, not those who throw gasoline on the fire, you know, but those people that are looking and looking at our democracy and helping and look at everyone as equal. You know, we're so far away from that, looking at black people as counting them as equal versus white people. So, you know, it's my speech is to everyone on Monday will be where we are highlighting some of the things that we have gone through, you know, using some of the bases that we have. Maybe we have to start with some of the churches, some organizations, you know, some, but we have to all at some point figure out how we come together and peace, but also make sure that we cannot be continued to be martyrs. You know, we cannot be continued to be stepped on as a people. You know, we have to form some equality and that's gonna take the leadership of our country to put those things into place and to enforce it for us to move forward. Yeah. Without all this war that we're having on our yeah. soil. Yeah. So anything else, I mean, you've, you've made some, part of what we need to do is have people in power who are willing to actually uh, work on addressing the injustices and healing things rather than throwing gasoline on the fire, as you said. Anything else you think we need to do uh, to, to kind of make progress on King's dream at this <sighs> crazy moment? Um, we need to, sometimes we have to start from home. You know, we start with our own families. Um, just like I spoke about with my daughters, we have to start with our home families because they are the ones that are going to trickle down outside. And if they're angry going outside, they're going to find those groups that are angry and they're going to join with those angry groups. And then we're only building on that. So we have to start from home. And then we start from these organizations. We have to hold some of these organizations that are standing up that, you know, like hold them accountable for their action too. It's not everyone that runs outside and saying, yes, some black power or all of these things are into the right things. So we have to start with some of these organizations and we start having conversation, small group conversation and having those town hall, um, meeting with our legislators, you know, people like that. Um, that is where we, we have to start from. But we cannot in our own self and in our own mind, 
um, if we're still const constantly in our own heads and in our own mind, we're gonna continue to make whatever negative um, ideas we have grow faster. And if we have positive idea, it will be just in our head. So we have to now spread it out. Um, I wanna see where I could go to a meeting or an organization or be in a store or anywhere across this country. And I don't have to feel threatened. Like, wait a minute, I can't go into that area because I'm a black person or I have to be there. I have to be out before it gets dark and all these kind of things. I don't want to, I can't run jog down a street because I don't belong here or someone question me if I'm driving on the street. We're so far away from that, you know, but I mean, if constant, you know, communication, constantly putting it on the forefront, like these are the things that have, that are happening to us. And I think we will probably get somewhere. And then these people that are in, in power or leadership or those people that are given certain authority, like the police officers and stuff like that, they have to sometimes take their own biases out of the way. Because a lot of them, no matter how we try, people are coming into the organization with their own personal biases. And that sometimes will, will, will grow, you know, if they based on, based on the, the, the organization and the environment. You know, so our own biases is sometimes a contributor to what is going on in these um, organizations. Sure. What do you hope Americans are thinking about this MLK Day and then followed by Black History Month? What wh What do you hope they're asking themselves? For MLK Day, I am I am thinking that our people reflecting. You know, they should be reflecting on what he stands for, what he fought for. And then moving into Black History Month, take that month um, ourselves to reflect, take our, that month to highlight some of the things that we have accomplished, take that month to say where we are, where we need to go, you know, and, and, and kind of like try to empower as many people as we possibly can, but also not only people of color, bring other people in, you know, bring other people in, people white, regardless of your race or your creed or your religion, kind of bring people in. Let's take a look, like actively take a look at what's going on around us, you know, see the hate that is, that is, that is, that is spreading around everybody else. I mean, like I am looking at the TV and I'm wondering how could someone say something negative that will create such hate in people that you want to kill people or you want to burn people down or you want to destroy uh, something that we hold sacred. I, I, I am, I am puzzled, you know, and some people we're going to, we can reach some people, but we can't, we're not going to be able to reach everyone, but if we can start, there'll be help. And I think that Black History Month, is it going to be some, a month that we reflect on, or is it going to be a month that's divided? That's going to be dividing people. Anything is possible, you know, because when George Floyd got killed, everyone, both black and white, I've, I've marched in a lot of um, marches, take, participate in a lot of marches. And a lot of people that were standing right next to me did not look like me. You know, they did not look like me. We link arms and we march and we shout together. So there is people in this country that will stand together. And we have to look for those people. And those are the ones that we wanna stand with to create that positive image that we can spread across this country. 
you know. And so if a lot of white people or come out and celebrate on Black History Month and MLK Day, you know, it's gonna show the country that we're not divided. Some places we are, but we can still come together. And I think that's how we're gonna, it's gonna be show. It's gonna be a show, really. You know, we could talk a, a lot, um, but if we, they can, people can see it, then it will make a difference. Powerful, thank you. You know, I, I can't resist asking, you're, you're such a strong reaction against the hate. Uh, how do you not fall into it yourself when you, you know, you've had these experiences of people, you know, shooing you away from like really difficult stuff. Clearly you don't go to that place. Kind of how do you work with your, your inner energies around this and, and, and not go to that place? Tap into it. Like I, I said before, you tap into your spiritual base. You tap into the spiritual base, but then you also tap into your upbringing. You know, um, my, my, I remember, yeah, my, I remember my grandmother used to say, you don't say the word lie. We, we couldn't say the word, the word lie. We used to have to say it's a fib. You don't say you hate someone. You don't like what that person does, but you don't, because the, those words are so strong. You don't say can't. You know, those are some of the stuff that we were taught growing up. So you kind of come back to the, oh, I can't, I don't, you can't say, ah, I hate that person. I don't like that behavior. I don't, you know, I mean, like I dislike how that person react. And me myself has to be able to be conscious of it because I have to, I, am, I have my kids. So I have to be conscious of what I say because the, oh, well, mom says she hate that individual. I can't do that. You know, because they're going to, I am saying to them, oh, it's okay for you to be that way. So I have to cut it off so right Even here. just using the words, just this yeah. incredible yeah. consciousness about the yeah. power of words. Just right. Yeah. You know, so even, even my son, who is a police officer, you know, I wanted to know how he felt about everything that was, was happening. In, and I had that conversation with him, you know, and then one thing I told him, I says, just remember who you are. Remember who your mom is and remember how you were raised. You know, and I always tell them growing up, I'm packing your toolboxes with a lot of things and you're going to find yourself in life in certain things. And I want you to be able to dig into that toolbox and pick out something from that toolbox that I've taught you, you know, and then go back to your resource, go back to your source, which is me and what I have in that toolbox. And that will help them along. Fantastic. Well, we're coming up on our time boundary. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our alumni community listening to this? As we we have to be, we have to be positive. Never forget who you are. Do not downplay who you are. I mean, be strong. You know, you're a woman, you're a man, whatever you're, you're a person of color, be strong of who you are. Be proud of where you come from and take that knowledge that have been given to you from your grandparents, your, your parents and step boldly, you know, just step out boldly and, and, um, you know, Present yourself. I am here. I am going to make a difference. I want to make a difference, you know, and nothing is going to stop you. And I mean, this is what I do every day, you know. Um, and then when I, then you find that place that you can go to, which is home or wherever, that safe haven. Mm -hmm. And then you could just let it all loose, mm -hmm. you know, and then you just relax and, and then empower yourself, get ready, energize yourself for the next day. Every and time do it again. you get outside of your house. You need that extra energizing power to go out and face a community because anything is possible out there. So just be positive about uh, know what you want, know what you're fighting for, and then go out and do it. 
Fantastic. Claudette, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service, for all you've done. Thank you for sharing your wisdom uh, with our, with our community here. And I just, I wish you all the best. Really appreciate you. Thank you so much, Max, for having me. This has been the New Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Max Clow. Thanks for listening. And I hope you join us for our next episode when we meet another servant leader who has chosen to step up and serve through politics. If you want to learn more about New Politics and the candidates that we support, please check us out online at newpolitics.org. And I'll leave you with this question. How do you feel called to serve at this critical moment for our nation? Thanks for joining and see you next time.